This is an Urbanarium City Talk. And this is Should I Stay or Should I Go? A show about Metro Vancouver's housing crisis. I'm Jenny Tan, just a regular person trying to make it in Metro Vancouver. On the podcast, I work out if I should stay living in my camping trailer or go somewhere else where I can afford to live. We acknowledge that Metro Vancouver is the unsurrendered traditional territory of many First Nations, including 10 local nations. The modern housing crisis has its roots in the colonization of Metro Vancouver and continues to displace Indigenous peoples. On today's show, the billions of dollars of drug money in our real estate market. Investigative reporter Sam Cooper explains how Vancouver ended up being the city where gangsters bring hockey bags of cash into our casinos. Sam Cooper, it's such a pleasure to have you in the show. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for having me. I was so excited to talk to you because you literally wrote the book on money laundering in Vancouver. We start off every interview with this question. What kind of home do you live in? Well, I am now living in a home in Ottawa with my family. I spent years uh, living and reporting from Vancouver. And after spending years, as many people of my generation have and continue to, trying to get into the market and failing, We made the hard decision to relocate and get jobs across the country in Ottawa. We bought a a really nice piece of land right in the middle of the city. It was kind of a rundown, sort of one of those post-World War II bungalows. They were made for soldiers coming back from World War II. So we did a total big reno and kind of built our uh, modern dream house. And uh, we love it. Congratulations, Sam. And maybe this is a good time to ask you more about what is going on with money laundering in Vancouver. I think living in Vancouver, we've heard about the grocery bags stuffed full $20 bills. We heard about videotapes at the River Rock Casino of people bringing loads and loads and loads of cash. What is going on? Yeah, it's a it's a huge story that took years of uh, really hard reporting and digging to figure out, but... In a nutshell, I found that for decades, there's been this new crime model running through Vancouver. And and really, it's, it's kind of an old crime model. It's how money is laundered out of mainland China and through casinos in Macau. Casinos in Vancouver and real estate in Vancouver were used in the same way. You've got Banks run by organized crime and the world's biggest drug traffickers uh, in Hong Kong, mainland China and Macau have set up in Vancouver. And they are running tens of billions of dollars at the low end estimate into Canadian real estate on the West Coast. Wait, 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 pause for a second. Tens of billions of dollars. Tens of billions of dollars. That's at the low end. Remember, I'm talking about going back to the mid and late 1980s. This is a way of moving drug money around the world, corruption money, and even legitimate money coming out of mainland China and going worldwide. We're talking about trillions. It's a mixture of underground criminal banks and how the criminals mix that money into traditional mainstream banks that's become known as the Vancouver model of crime. My reporting and uh, documents from our government, that is FinTrack, the anti-money laundering agency, the RCMP say that uh, 
There is so much money in mainland China. Everyone knows a lot of it is uh, legitimate money seeking to get out. A great amount of it is corruption money. And so since there's so much money seeking to find its way outside of mainland China and around the world, and we have these capital export controls of $50,000 per year on each citizen in China, there has to be a way underground. That's the Vancouver model. Anyone that wants to get money out of China and get it someplace else has to go in a majority of cases to underground banks run by organized crime. I'm just kind of stuck here, Sam, I admit, like on that figure of tens of billions of dollars, because now I'm sitting here, right, as a person trying to figure out whether I can keep living in Vancouver. And now I'm hearing that there are tens of billions of dollars of drug money that's flooding Vancouver real estate. I'm feeling like it's going to be pretty hopeless for most of us. Well, it's a rational reaction. These are mind-blowing figures. And you could find that families that were very connected at a high level to the Chinese Communist Party. I'm speaking about a case that I'm looking at right now. I haven't reported yet, but I have the documents saying a family of four ran $114 million into Vancouver. Uh, a young lady that calls herself a student bought a $15 million mansion and a $14 million mansion. And bank wire transfers out of Hong Kong are directly linked to triad underground banks. They call themselves currency exchanges, but deeper investigation shows that these are triad banks, which are really uh, part of the people that run casinos in Macau, the people that loan shark money in Macau and Hong Kong, and the people that make just unbelievable sums of money from heroin and fentanyl. And so I, I do think People are right to both be outraged and to be, uh, you know, frustrated, disappointed and mind blown by the sums of money coming in underground. Walk me through this. Someone passes a $20 bill right, to a drug dealer in exchange for some fentanyl. Trace that stream of money for me. Where does that $20 bill go? We could even backpedal a bit and say, how does the fentanyl get into Canada? Let's start with the poor, often with mental uh, illnesses, living very close to death in some ways in the downtown east side. Often through a social program uh, on a Wednesday, this person will, will get a, a check of social assistance. They will be able to convert that into cash. So they'll have 20, 40, $60 in those $20 bills in their hands. They'll walk to often an alleyway off of uh, Main and Hastings, and they'll get a little bag of uh, either, you know, it's heroin or fentanyl, Oxycontin or fake Oxycontin pills. Very quickly, that drug trafficker, let's say they've got uh, three crumpled up 20s in their hands, they will run over to uh, their superior who is now bundling that 20 off to someone else. And let's just imagine a number of deals happen this a day or two in the downtown east side, transactions everywhere. Pretty soon you have literally a warehouse with those, those $20 bills taken from the downtown east side. That money is bundled by drug traffickers and taken to an underground bank in Richmond, which really could be a currency exchange at street level. It could be a flashy building, in an, a flashy room in an office building. The drug traffickers will deposit their hockey bags or suitcases of $20 bills. And now we've got a higher level gangster, sort of a criminal financial entrepreneur who will bundle up those 20s and then take them to River Rock Casino or very near and loan them out to these ultra wealthy persons, mostly from Macau and mainland China that are have been recruited to come over and gamble. The money is lent to them. They have 
zero problems gambling what is very clearly to anyone looking at it uh soiled bundles of drug money they get their casino chips let's say they're in canada for two weeks they've gambled a couple million dollars in there night after night they're going to get some casino checks five hundred thousand dollars here and there and uh, you can see how that can be a down payment on a low-level home in Vancouver, a mid-level home, and that's their first step of money laundering. It, it cycles on and on, but that's a good introduction to how uh, that trade works from the street level into a, a casino and a starter home in Vancouver. I'm imagining some like pretty wealthy person walks in, sits down at a table, and some low-level gangster is handing them $20 bills. And how do they cash their money out? This will be very interesting for your listeners. Let's not imagine, let's talk about the very highest level VIP backrack gambler in BC at the time. I'm thinking of 2015. CBSA says that he's a fentanyl precursor importer. BC Lottery Corporation knows that. They also know he's a loan shark, a high-level gangster. He's the very biggest gambler in the province at the time. He's sitting down in a River Rock Casino in a very, you know, plush, very private, uh, what they call VIP privé lounge for Baccarat high rollers. He's not extremely well-dressed. He's in a, a you know, a nice-looking tracksuit. This room has been designed specifically with the Macau casinos in mind. This is not conjecture. These are documents. So it's being designed for the people that know the Macau market. Let's flash back to our fentanyl precursor importer. He's sitting at the table. A casino worker from a Vancouver casino approaches him, hands four to five little cellophane rolls of $5,000 chips. That's $500,000 in casino chips. This is done in front of four or five casino employees. Any person will know that's not a kosher transaction, but you can imagine these employees are either bribed or they're scared for their lives. This is a high-level drug trafficker being allowed to gamble with unknown sources of funds. He's at the table, let's say, most of the night for a few weeks. He's going to walk out of there with a million-dollar check from the casino, and that's a very easy path of money laundering. And this is all from documents. <laughs> Right. So these $20 bills come in, clearly they're soiled, and someone can walk out of there with clean $100 bills that look like they just came out of a bank, which they did because they came out of a BC government licensed casino. That is 100% accurate. This is a known form of money laundering called refining. And it's important to understand these $20 bills are a problem for the drug trafficking organizations because they literally are warehoused or in large trucks, it's difficult to move that money around. And it's very dangerous from the perspective of criminals. Police can find them. So with that one simple casino transaction, you've reduced that amount of drug cash by 75%. And so you can easily carry out those $100 in a, let's say, a man purse rather than a hockey bag. And if they're converted to $5,000 casino chips, you can get it into even a smaller package. So at a very simple level, it's about reducing the volume of drug cash and making it easier to carry. And of course, easier to get into banks and real estate. So Sam, I think the obvious question is, why didn't anyone do anything about that? Why didn't the casinos, why didn't the government? And like you said, everyone knew this was happening. The police must have known it was happening. The RCMP must have, the Vancouver Police Department must have. And no one stopped these people? 
That's right. That's the outrageous thing that really bothers people, that this was so widely known and so easily seen. My book is called Willful Blindness, and willful blindness is a legal term meaning that regulators, politicians, the people in charge of making sure this egregious crime doesn't happen in casinos turned a blind eye for a reason. This is in documents. It's proven, I believe, that the government turned a blind eye because so much money is being taken out in proceeds from the government casinos. Of course, tax money is involved as it relates to real estate. Even more money is pouring into BC. The uncomfortable truth and answer here is that it's corruption at a very high level that allowed this to happen. The evidence has been slam dunk that a lot of people in positions of power were warned explicitly, this is huge drug money laundering, you have to do something, and nothing was done until the scandal broke in some of my news reports, and then people started scrambling very fast. I'm still stuck on this point that everyone knew about this, but no one did anything about it. Who are the people who are responsible in your mind? And has there been any comeuppance? We had the former gaming minister, Rich Coleman, the former very powerful BC liberal uh, politician on the stand. I'll just give you a simple example of evidence. It came out in the inquiry that several of his subordinates in the BC gaming regulator sat him down. They wanted a meeting in 2010 and they warned him directly. This is suspected egregious drug money laundering. These $20 coming into the casino, I won't just center out Mr. Coleman, who we should say that he denied wrongdoing. He did not deny that he was warned and others were warned repeatedly. We also heard evidence that RCMP high level people at management level who were close to people in BC's government also sort of got the message to back off. And for years, nothing happened in the casinos. The police knew so clearly that the highest level gamblers in the casinos were the very same high level drug trafficking targets of investigations in the 1990s, and yet nothing was stopped. I'll give you one last example. It shows how ridiculous and outrageous this is. We heard that the board of the BC Lottery Corporation, they knew so well that these bags of cash coming in were just absurd. They, they had a video that they watched where they put music to the image of a gambler struggling with the weight of such a large bag of cash coming into a casino. There's just so many jaw droppers, but that just shows you how brazen it was. <laughs> well, I mean, if the VCLC executives are making a music video out of gangsters bringing in drug money, I mean, I don't think they can deny that they knew it was happening. This Cullen Commission is happening now, and I'm really curious about your thoughts on it. I'm starting to wonder, can I trust this inquiry? You're not unlike a number of experts that have watched it. And I would say that I think they didn't probe everything that they could have. I'm aware of some corruption allegations, extremely serious, that I don't think they got to the bottom of. But I believe they got to the bottom end of the case that there was this turning of a blind eye willfully to what was known to be drug money. That case was made. I can't see how Commissioner Cullen won't come back with some very strong findings that there was a willful blindness. People in power, there was dereliction of duty. They let the citizens of BC down. What I don't know is I don't know how powerfully they will make the case of this very high-end real estate money laundering that I know occurred because I'm talking about developers 
who are connected to organized crime halfway around the world. And, you know, just to answer, you know, point blank your question, can you trust it? The proof will be in the pudding. There's some people that think that people like Mr. Coleman or former Premier Christie Clark could have got a more rigorous questioning and some of the, the whistleblowers, that's the people that, that leaked records or, or made allegations against their bosses, seem to get a pretty rough ride in, in questioning. It didn't seem to be fair in some ways. Sam, to clarify, is this still going on? So if they would let me into a VIP backroom at the River Rock Casino, would I still see this happening? No. To give you the simple answer, you can no longer carry a hockey bag of $20 bills into a BC casino. This inquiry has had the positive effect that that form of egregious bulk cash money laundering doesn't occur. I think people can have confidence that in in a way, you know, the government responded to intense media scrutiny and they've eliminated this what I'll call bulk cash hockey bag money laundering. But the important point there is that doesn't mean that the drugs flowing into BC have gone down at all. That That is still occurring, which means money laundering is occurring across Canada. It's just a, a little bit more secretive or not quite as open in BC as it was before. So what I'm hearing is that organized crime has strong roots in BC. And we stopped or at least slowed down one channel, but it doesn't mean that there's not other channels that have dirty money flowing through them. That's exactly right. What has happened is that British Columbia has become a world-leading node of high-level organized crime and uh, innovative, advanced cybercrime to the extent that we have the most powerful transnational gangs have made BC a base of operations. So I'm talking about the Sinaloa cartel, six or seven of the most powerful Mexican cartels, Colombian cartels, cartels coming out of Middle Eastern uh, nations, but right at the top, the Asian-based triads that have taken control of this crime model. And it's because they're laundering the money. They've mastered the laundering of global money for these other transnational drug cartels. And so that's where we are in BC. It's the sad outcome of years of neglect by BC's government and establishment. Sam, what can an average person do about all of this? The average person can call up their local councillor, can, can email MPs, uh, members of parliament or legislative assemblies, and say, I'm outraged. This is having an impact on you know opioid overdoses, on housing prices. The evidence is very strong. So what are you doing about it? What I would do if I suddenly changed jobs and I became a powerful politician or a prosecutor or something like that. I've argued in my book that Canada is pretty powerless. The RCMP tried to get wiretap approvals for seven months and failed. Yet US agencies or Australian agencies can get these same approvals in a couple of days. They have powerful anti-organized crime laws in the United States that worked it was powerful anti-Cosa Nostra laws that allowed the United States government to fight that growing problem. And Canada needs those same types of reforms. So if I were in power, I would reform the legal system so that organized crime doesn't have such an advantage. This is a, a bit of a scary but a high-level idea because so much of this uh, involves gangs that are, as my book has proven, working with the Chinese state, which is shocking and hard to believe but true. I do think we're now in a position in Canada 
and with our allies where we, we need to start thinking about limiting trade with China. So if you start limiting trade, that's going to start limiting the flow of money that's coming in illicitly and illegally. That'll start to reduce this just incredible flows of fentanyl precursors. That's a very high level solution that I actually think some decision makers are starting to, to look at that seriously. And it, it touches more than crime, housing prices in Vancouver. It touches geopolitics and any number of things, uh, even democracy in Canada. So that's kind of a big answer, but that's where I would start looking. Sam, we ask every guest this. If you were living in Metro Vancouver, would you stay here or would you give up and go? And you've given up and left. That's a tough one. And it's really emotional. We wanted to, we loved Vancouver. And so I'm going to say for about a decade, we, we crimped and saved and thought about, you know, what's going on. We eventually made the decision that we just, we chose a more affordable market. It's very bittersweet, but I do feel we made the right choice and we, we're set up for our family now. So it's a personal decision for anyone where they are. And the answer I want to give is that if government does everything in their power, they will be able to make a fairer housing market in Vancouver. That's not to say that they will even significantly bring prices all the way back to the reach of people that pay their taxes in Vancouver, but it'll be fair. It'll be much more fair. And they, the prices will come down if you crack down on this underground banking and money laundering. Sam, thank you so much for spending your time to, with us. I think you've given us a lot to think about. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was a really great conversation. And now let's break down those ideas with architect Bruce Hayden. All right. What do we think of Sam? I was shocked, to be absolutely honest, when I heard the issue of money laundering had certainly been on my radar a little bit. I hadn't understood to the extent to which it was a very BC specific problem and to the extent to which it was actually known about, you know, Sam uses the wonderful term willful blindness. Everybody ignored it because there was money involved and that money was useful to a lot of people. You know, when I listened to the episode, I got a sense that it sort of reminded me of climate change. There are times when I felt when talking to him, my mind would become numb because it was just it was too horrendous to comprehend. Same thing with this money laundering crisis because it was so bad, tens of billions of dollars at the low end of estimates going into a real estate market. I, I had a similar experience and I found myself shocked, but I didn't have the same reaction that I didn't want to know about it because it did feel like this was a fixable problem, in fact. Yes, that, yes. Which, which is something that I was, I was grateful for. And it sounds like that it's certainly not as bad as it was. And that doesn't excuse the fact that it has been horrendous. And I, I was aware as well that I tend to, I think as Canadians, sometimes we tend to get shocked when the world abuses our trust on one level. I think, mm. I, I know for myself, I sometimes have this fantasy that mm. we don't live in corrupt societies and things like that. And, I, and by the way, I think relative to many, many other places in the world, we don't. I don't want to overstate this. But I found the, the overall statistics about it appalling. And it actually did give me a different lens on how the world views us. Mm is kind of in some sense just suckers, I would say. Yeah. 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 It is a kind of a secure place to stick a bunch of money. So it's not just financial return. It's about that kind of security and stability, which on one level is a good thing. We just don't want that to be taken advantage of. 
Yeah, we're that very secure pillow under which you can stick a bunch of illegal drug money. Yes. In fact, you can haul it in hockey bags and we'll take it. Yes. And what is difficult for me is the level to which politicians abuse our trust. When he talked about the BCLC board creating that music video to someone struggling to bring in the hockey bag of cash, I think we should take that really seriously. I just was really shocked by what people in power think they can get away with. Do they take all of us for suckers? Well, and I do always want to say, you know, I met and dealt with a huge number of politicians. And by and large, I think it's a crappy job um, that doesn't have a lot of perks and is is full of complaints. And I actually say the same about bureaucrats. I've dealt with a lot of bureaucrats that really, really do their job well. And what happens is when anything goes wrong, they just get blamed. Right. But when anything goes well, the politician just takes the credit. So, right. so there's a complex dynamic there. But if I step way back on Sam for a moment, I think that the process of civic engagement is important. What I'm aware of this, that Sam brought to the issue is that the problem of housing is a global problem. Yes. And the problem of how finances and things move around the world do affect yours and my life in very direct ways. And so, you know, part of our goal with this podcast, I think, is to address the whole complexity of housing. And what Sam did for me was, was recognize that this kind of flood of dirty money moving around the world has landed and affects the way that you and I have to pay for housing. I want to go back to your thought earlier about other people view Canada and sort of take our trust for maybe granted. And in response, we sort of step around that topic timidly. One thing about Sam's book is I was, you know, almost shocked by his directness. And he is very willing to say, like, it's this cartel from this country and this other cartel from this other country. And he's very clear which countries the money is currently coming out of now. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's like, we need to just say it. We need to just put it on the table and then not not sort of dish around it a little bit. And I think it is an uncomfortable thing about real estate is that it is fraught with lots of issues that we as Canadians don't have the tools to talk about. I, I think that's a lovely observation and I agree with you. And I think that let's have some more honest conversations about housing, right? And I think those honest conversations do need to occur at a whole bunch of different levels. There is this real question, for example, I am a passionate fan of immigration. I think immigration has made Canada what it is. I get, I feel incredibly privileged to live in a kind of a diverse and successful- Where's your family from, Bruce? England. Okay. Yeah, I did the kind of um, 23andMe genetic testing. It's totally pure Northern European. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah. I could I could sign up for a white supremacy organization like that, give them my and blood. And they take it, you. And I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> when yeah. did your family come over? Oh, both my parents came to Canada in the mid-50s. Okay. Early 50s, actually. Um, my mom still had an English accent, still does have an English accent at 96, and hates being thought of as an English. She just hates hates it. <laughs> okay, let me not take you away from the track that you're going down, yeah. which is immigration. Well, the, so the but immigration does have a real effect on the housing market. And it's a real issue. And we tend to want to ignore that issue. And, and again, I'm passionately, I think that, that, that for all sorts of reasons, we want to increase the number of young people. We want to increase the diversity of our culture. It's an amazingly positive thing. It does impact the housing market. Yes, it let's, obviously like, let's, does. Be, yeah. let's be real about that, let's right? Let's be real about that. And I do think we need to have more of those straight ahead conversations. And, and often 
We don't want to have those and we don't have as many forums for ethical discussions. And I think Sam Sam brings an important and powerful lens on this. And I would also say that, well, if I step back again, if we talk about the housing approval process, there are many places when the day-to-day process of approving housing uh, in many parts of the world is absolutely corrupt. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a building code professional and he talked about going back to his, his family um, who's an Italian heritage actually. And the, he described his job which in part is signing off on code compliance. It's a complex yeah. issue. And their approach is, wow, that must be great for bribes, right? And, <laughs> right. And, you know, it was actually. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, it's not, I, I'm not calling out um, Italian culture in general. It was just like that, that was, that was what they said about it. And, and he said, oh, no, that's not really how it works here, right? And it is, okay. so it is actually an important thing to recognize that we're very lucky here. Mm. Um, and I know that there are people who think the city is corrupt. They, there are people that think the city is in the pockets of developers. In my experience, it's, Absolutely not true. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's a good reminder of the nuance of this discussion that absolutely, yes, well, absolutely is a strong word, but yes, that that seems to be fairly compelling evidence of very high level corruption in this case involving quite a lot of money. Absolutely. Yes. yes, Let's be very clear about that. That was personally shocking to me. And let us not leave anyone with the impression that that's all our society is. Yes. This is a good point. Are we good? I think I'm fine here. We are good. Thank you. And that was Sam Cooper, investigative reporter with Global News. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Make sure to hit subscribe so you know when we drop our next episode. And tell us what you think. Email us at citytalk at urbanarium.org. That's citytalk at u-r-b-a-n-a-r-i-u-m dot org. I read every email. And thanks so much to our editorial advisor, Urbanarium board member and processing buddy, Bruce Hayden. Our production team is self-hired. Special thanks to Suman Candola. The music was composed by Yu Tae Lee. Will Jackson designed our podcast art. I'm Jenny Tan, and you're listening to Should I Stay or Should I Go? Ciao!